We are now in part four of picking up the diamonds, that is John 15, 1 through 17. Looking at Jesus being the true vine, that was the first message. What it means that we abide, that was the second message. Third message last week was, if the Father removes branches that don't bear fruit, does that mean a Christian can lose their salvation? And this morning, uh, as our final pass through John 15, 1 through 17, and we are looking at the Father's pruning of the fruitful. The Father's pruning of the fruitful. To begin our time, I want to read the full context of the, these 17 verses, pray, and we'll jump right into the message this morning. If you would, look with me at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you, these things I command you, so that you will love one another. Well, this is the word of God. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, Christ has been clear in speaking to us, commanding us even to abide in him. And that to abide in him, he will bear fruit through us. And that you, Father, are the vine dresser, the one who prunes those branches that bear fruit to be more fruitful. But Lord, we need your spirit 
to open the eyes of our hearts to understand and to receive and believe all that you say this morning. And so, Lord, please do that. Please let us cling to Christ, remain in him, believe in Jesus who lived, died for our sins, and rose from the grave. Empower us by your spirit for all these things so that you would bear your fruit through us for your glory and our neighbor's good. So, Lord, assist us in the hearing of your word this morning. Make us hear your word this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Lord, to that end, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. He was raised in wealth. He was raised in opulence. He had the world's leading education, not only at his fingertips, but he went through it. He had the world's most advanced training, militarily, socially, and more. Whatever he wanted was at his fingertips. This man had it all until God took it away. God took it all away from him and made this man impoverished. A man now who had to labor dawn to dusk for his living. That the Lord took it all away, moving this man from extreme wealth to extreme poverty. This man from extreme fame and notoriety to sheer obscurity. But in all of this, God had a plan. God was shaping this man. And this is how God shaped him. God was shaping this man for 40 years in the wilderness. And God had a purpose in all of these bitter providences and difficult plans. This man had 40 years of opulence and then this next season of life, 40 years in the wilderness, so that this man would be a useful instrument in God's redeeming hands. And it was not until he was 80 that Moses was an effective instrument, an effective instrument in the unique service to the Lord for which the Lord had prepared him. God was pruning Moses such that God could say through Moses in Numbers 12, that Moses was the humblest man on the earth with no hint of pride, no hint of self-seeking. It was just simply a reality. Not because Moses did that to himself, but because God pruned Moses. And because God was pruning Moses, Moses could be fruitful for God's good purposes. Today in our text, Jesus. Jesus explains... In the Bible to us today, the Father's plan and purposes of his pruning in your life. Each of your lives individually and our life corporately as a church, Jesus explains in his word today the Father's plan and purposes of pruning so that you and I individually and together would be useful, fruitful, for God's gospel purposes in us and through us. So, as you take notes this morning, here's the outline. The same type of outline we've had the previous three weeks, and it's this. There's 
one main point with a bunch of sub-questions. And so here it is. Here's the main point of the sermon. Jesus is the true vine, so abide in him. There's a command. You must remain in Jesus, believe in Jesus, abide in Jesus. But as we turn our attention, as we turn this diamond in our hands, we have a series of questions. And first, we're going to ask this question, what is fruitfulness? If you heard it when I read these 17 verses, that word fruitfulness was used many times. What is fruitfulness? Next, we will move into our next series of questions. What is pruning and why does the Father do it? And then we will move next to how does the Father prune? Next, what are the results of the Father's pruning for fruitfulness? And then we will end our time looking at Christ, the suffering servant, our hope and hero in suffering. For that, we'll move out of John 15 into the book of Hebrews. So with that, our first point is this. Our first question really is, what is fruitfulness? If you look back in John 15, beginning in verse 2, I am going to read a series of verses jumping along down this passage, looking at those verses that use the word fruit. It's a long passage. It's woven through. Jesus says many things. He's very repetitive. So on the one hand, it can be easy to hear what he's saying. And on the other hand, you can get a little lost in the weeds. So tune your ears to fruit, because that's what we're going to ask now. What is fruitfulness? So look along with me, verse 2, and I'll signal the verses as I jump down through the passage. Tune your ears for the word fruit. Jesus says in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, excuse me, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. And lastly, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. As Jesus, in these 17 verses, describes himself as the true vine... The Father is the vine dresser, believers as branches. Our role in this illustration is to abide in Jesus, to remain in Jesus, so that we can bear fruit. In these 17 verses, Jesus repeats himself seven times. Seven times Jesus uses that word fruit, but what does Jesus mean by fruit? It sounds good. You can probably picture it in your mind, but shouldn't we be clear on that? Is fruit something that's open for you to define as you want? Because there isn't a point in this verse where Jesus says, by fruit I mean, and then he answers the question. 
We have to be careful readers of the Bible, careful praying through Scripture to understand what he means. We should be clear on this so that we don't think we should be doing one thing, bearing fruit, when Jesus, Jesus means a different thing by bearing fruit. After all, fruitless branches are cut off. So what is fruit? Let me just give you a summary definition. What is fruit? Simply put, fruit are Christ-like actions that overflow from a Christ-like heart. That's a way of summarizing in the big context of John 13 all the way to John 17. In John 15, when Jesus talks about fruit, given all that he says, fruit are Christ-like actions that overflow from a Christ-like heart. This is another way of talking about what the Bible says elsewhere, good works. This is another way of speaking of what James says in chapter 2 when he says, I will show you my faith by my works. Fruit, in John 15, are Christ-like actions that overflow from a Christ-like heart. Some passages in the Bible, we read through the New Testament, and they focus on fruit of Christ-like character. And other passages focus on Christ-like works. When you read John 15, it's important to know that when Jesus speaks of your fruitfulness, Jesus is putting the accent on works. Not just character, but the works that flow from character. This is about what you do. The Christian life, Jesus indicates, is a working life. It begins by believing in Jesus and his work for us, a work we couldn't work, that Jesus saves us, we can't save ourselves. But once Jesus saves us, we get to work for Jesus. Think about Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, where we're told that we're saved apart from works for good works. Jesus is talking about fruitfulness. And that fruitfulness, in the context of these 17 verses, shines a neon light on verses 10, 12, and 13. Because again then, if, if fruit is so broadly defined as Christ-like actions that flow from a Christ-like character, in verse 10, 12 and 13, Jesus gets very clear about what fruit he is looking for you to produce in your life. Look at verse 10. He says, if you keep my commandments, notice that it's plural, many commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And so we saw in the second sermon of this series that to abide is to obey. It is to remain in Jesus, believe in Jesus, but it's to actually keep and do Jesus' commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, look at verse 12. This is my commandment. So now it's singular. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So there's that character component, love in the heart, overflowing into something, and that something is verse 13, greater love 
has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So to say that you love your brother or sister in Christ, but then to not lay down your life for your brother and sister in Christ is to reveal that you may not actually love them. In this passage, fruit is something you can actually see. It actually has effects. And verse 13 says, Greater love has no one than this. Someone laid down his life for his friends. The previous verse worked backwards. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So fruit is active. All obedience to Jesus flows out of love for Jesus, which reveals itself in tangible ways of love for the Christian neighbor. That's what fruit is. So we've looked at 1 John many times as a cross-reference to this upper room discourse. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. I think that John is reflecting on and expanding on what Jesus says right here. 1 John 3, 16, 17, and 18. Listen to what John says. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Right? John is quoting verses 12 and 13. Verse 17 in 1 John 3. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So this illustration in John 15 and 1 John 3 reflects on it. Your attitude of love is not enough on these verses. It is your love in action that is the fruit of being a Christian. Think about just a few chapters previous in John 13. John 13, Jesus shows us one example of what fruit looks like in our lives. John 13, verses 34 and 35. You, you remember what just happened, right? Jesus has stood up and he's taken off his outer garment. And he put the towel around his waist and then he gets down and he washes the disciples' feet, even Judas's. And then he says to them in verse 34... A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Verse 35, by this all people, the world, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And work backwards through that text, the verse I just read a new commandment I give to you. You love one another just as I have loved you. You're to love one another. It's not just a sentiment. 
It's not just an emotion. Jesus got up and he washed their feet. And then later, in a few chapters, Jesus is going to get up again, go to Gethsemane, pray, sweat great drops of blood, go be betrayed, illegally tried, and to go to the cross for our sins on our behalf, laying down his life so that we could have eternal life. Jesus is going to do that. And Jesus creates an ethic of what it means to claim the name of Christ and to be a follower of Jesus. What's interesting, in John 15, as Jesus is a good teacher and a masterful preacher, he's being repetitive. So I just read to you John 13, 35. Let me just read it again. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So our tangible, uh, towel-wasted love, working for one another, displays gospel realities for unbelieving friends and family out of these doors or maybe who join us on a Sunday morning. So there's, a, there's an evangelistic component, a demonstration of your love for someone else. Verse 35, all people will know you're my disciples if you love for one another. Now go back to our passage, 15.8. Look at 15.8. Jesus says again, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So fruitfulness is not just personal holiness and godliness. If you're like me, when you hear Jesus talk about producing fruit, maybe your mind goes right to the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You go to the fruit of the Spirit, personal holiness and godliness. Fruit means, though, here, not just peacefulness and patience. It means that we roll up our sleeves and do something for your church family. Fruit is not just personal holiness and godliness, it begins with personal holiness and godliness, but fruit here is meeting needs generously. Jesus means dying to yourself, taking up your cross daily, following him, dying to yourself so that your brothers and sisters in Christ can have life. It's the towel-wasted, rolled-up sleeves, abundant and constant giving of your time and treasure, your gifting and grace Love for Christ works for Christ. And remember in our passage, remember last week, branches that don't bear fruit are cut off and thrown into the fire. Go, go back, please, and listen to that online. Practically speaking, then, this means that you are personally attentive. Jesus intends that you and I, we each, all of us, are personally attentive to the needs and ministries of this church. When you look through the logic of the rest of the New Testament as it unfolds, Jesus intends that all Christians congregate together in sheepfolds or little pens called local churches. And we love all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we pray for other churches every morning. But there's a priority that Christ gives and responsibility Christ gives to us for one another. And practically, this means the idea of Washing other people's feet, meeting needs is not something that's out in the ether, floating in the clouds. It's the needs in the church bulletin. It's the needs 
in the newsletter. It's the opportunities announcements that you hear. It's being attentive to the needs and ministries of this church. It means that all of us have this posture. You ask, how can I help? What needs aren't getting met? And what can I do to meet those needs? Mm, I'm not interested in meeting those needs. Anything else that suits my tastes? That's not what Jesus is saying. Whatever needs arise are the needs that God providentially gives, and we are to be willing to lay down our lives, loving one another, meeting needs for one another. What can I do to serve? How can I make things easier for you? Hey, Jessica, I see you in the kitchen preparing coffee and making all of these good things for us. Is there anything I can do to make life easier for you? Hey, Corey, I see you walking around the church uh, making sure that things are well attentive and cared for and, and people are helped if they seem to be in unique distress. Is there any way that I can help you? Hey, Katie, I hear that there's needs in children's ministry. I'm, those little people freak me out and scare me. I don't know what to do, but, but I, I'm willing to give it a try. Can I, can I try it out, and, and, then, and then maybe you can help me know how to serve the kids? Hey, Laura, um, women's ministry. Is there any way that I can serve and make things easier for the women's ministry team? Hey, Bo, is there anything I can do to help with men's ministry? Hey, Coralie. Hey, Sarah. Hey, David. Hey, and now we can go through the list. There is a tangible, practical, mundane, and normalness to bearing fruit for Jesus. We tend to think it's big and flashy things, but here it's just simply, well, what First John told us, remember? If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother need and yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him, little children? Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is our interpersonal level and a corporate level of our life together as a church to bear fruit is to be in each other's lives and to seek to make each other's lives more abundantly fruitful, blessed, and needs met in Jesus. But there's a question. That's the first point. And by the way, the points are all differently length, just so you know. Um... How good are we at our own personal fruitfulness? Uh, when, when John chapter 3 happens to you and the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again, are we perfect in our fruitfulness? We're not. We're not. You see, what Jesus does is the text goes a step further. Fruitfulness is inseparable. Your fruitfulness, your tangible acts of love for the body of Christ are inseparable from the Father's pruning. So if you talk about fruitfulness in John 15, you have to talk about pruning. And if you talk about pruning in John 15, you have to talk about fruitfulness. To think of one is to think of the other. To pray for more fruitfulness in your life is to also pray for the Father to prune your life. Hence the emphasis on prayer so many times in John 15. So in other words, your fruitfulness, our ability, which really is 
Christ in us, abiding in Jesus and he bears fruit through us, our fruitfulness depends on the Father's pruning of your life. So then, what is pruning and why does the Father do it? Two verses. Look again at verse 2 and we'll look at verse 16. Just to hear it again, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the Father takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he leaves alone. Is that what your Bible says? That's not what your Bible says. 100%, every single branch, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, and here it is, so that it may bear more fruit. And then down to verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. And here it is, that you should go and bear fruit. But note this, and that your fruit should abide. It should remain. It should stay. God the Father prunes every branch so that it bears more fruit and then even more fruit and that our fruit would have lasting effects lasting effects that's what verse 16 says by your fruit should abide god's aim in your life is more and more fruit that glorifies him proves your discipleship to jesus and is a blessing and benefit to others so if fruit is defined as Christ-like actions that flow from a Christ-like attitude, what is pruning? What's the image here? Well, simply put, this is not a tranquil, gentle, uh, lapping waves on white sands of a warm beach image. What is pruning? It is the vine dresser taking a knife and cutting off pieces of good and fruitful branches, cutting it so that it bears more fruit. I asked one of our resident horticulturalists what this means and looks like, and here's what they explained to me about pruning. Jesus is using this image. Pruning is about fruit. I'm going to tell you four things here. Pruning is about fruit. Pruning is about direction. Pruning is about strength. And pruning is about beauty. Fruit, direction, strength, and beauty. If there's too many branches on the vine, the nutrients are diluted, and you get poor fruit. You get fruit, but it's not very fruity fruit. It doesn't taste as good. You want strong, delicious fruits, you cut off branches so that more of the sap, more of the juice in the vine goes and produces better fruit. And so you prune fruitful branches to produce even greater fruit. But a vine dresser also cares about the direction of growth. If branches grow vertically, they actually can, uh, they can't bear fruit. And not only do vertical branches not bear fruit, but then they, they, cla or they, uh, they, they block the sunlight, preventing other branches from being as fruitful as they could, so you cut it off. You care about the direction. 
The vine will grow chaotically, but the vine dresser comes up and wants it to go this way. Not that way, but this way. And so the vine dresser will prune so that you go this way. A vine dresser also contributes to making a plant stronger against storms, able to withstand wind, not fall down. When the branches are cut off, the vine responds by getting even stronger. No pruning, weak vine. Storm comes, blows over, dies. And lastly, a vine dresser cares about beauty and aesthetics. Sometimes, most of the time, or almost all the time, a vine is simply made more attractive to the eyes and more beautiful by pruning. So our resident horticulturalist, one of them, we have a number, the fruitfulness of pruning, the direction of pruning, the strength and storms of pruning, the beauty of pruning are all inseparable bound up together. So the Father, in the image of Jesus here, this image of the Father moves and removes and He cuts and He shapes you so that you are more fruitful in your Christ-like foot-washing love for your church so that the world will see how. So there's the imagery, right? If that's in the world of horticulture, if, if you're looking at how you prune, how does that translate in this illustration to your life right now? Well, next, number three, how does the father prune? As I said a moment ago, this image here is not gentle. It's cutting. And later in the Bible, this idea is developed with other words such as training or discipline, or suffering. Listen, simply put, what does it mean that the Father prunes you? What does it actually look like? Because I think for a lot of us, we don't recognize the constant and continual pruning the Father's doing in your life right now. You see, you might have come in here this morning and you're perplexed about many of the difficulties and confusions and dashed dreams and trials and troubles that you're facing, well, now we are going to see what God is doing in all of those perplexities. Simply put, God uses all the difficulties of your life as means of pruning you so that your life is all the more fruitful for Jesus. Moses 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, for his final 40 years in the wilderness, leading a group of rebellious people. Joseph, beaten, betrayed, sold into slavery, thrown into a dungeon for years because he was faithful to God, to be shaped so that God would use him to save the world, as it were. We could talk about Ruth, we could talk about Naomi. We could talk about God's work in David's life. Mary Magdalene, Peter, Paul. Every person in the Bible. The person sitting next to you. And you. And you. God uses all the difficulties in your life. He wastes none of them. He uses all the difficulties in your life as a means of pruning you so that your life is more fruitful and reflective of Jesus. We live in a fallen world. 
We live in a world that's full of sin, both in us and outside of us, a world full of suffering and sorrows, trials and tribulations, pain and problems. And for those who love God, who have bowed the knee to Christ and confessed Him as Lord and Savior, the Father uses all of the bad things in the world and all of the bad things in your life for great gospel good in you and through you. The sheer wonder, majesty, and mystery of the gospel is that God is able to work in sin and folly and more for his children, even your own sins against others and other sins against you, and God is able to make bad things good The prophets speak of God bringing beauty out of ashes. That means as a believer in Christ, we only have one thing in Christ, namely sure, steadfast hope. We actually have many things in Christ, but we have hope in Christ. The God God wastes nothing. The Father, as you abide in Jesus, prunes you because you are fruitful to make you more fruitful. And that pruning is about beautifying you with holiness. It's about strengthening you with the gospel. It's about giving you a gospel direction in your life and producing loving fruit that impacts everyone around you. To mix the metaphor that Jesus gives us in John 15, pruning can be a glacial pace, meaning that it takes decades for God to make that cut. Even a lifetime. Pruning can be glacial and it can be cataclysmic. That in that singular moment, God changes the trajectory of your life forever. Cataclysmic and glacial. You see, when Jesus speaks of pruning, this is basically giving us the seed form, so to speak, of a doctrine of suffering. In the goodness of God in utilizing this broken world and our sin for good purposes. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12. There's many texts. It was very difficult to leave many of them on the cutting room floor. But Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 13. Listen to these verses. Make a few comments along the way. After just giving us the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, all of those who by faith, suffered for Jesus, looking forward to coming of Jesus. That's a cloud of witnesses around you and me, so that now we would see in Hebrews 12, 3, consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you forgotten The exhortation that addresses you as my sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. 
God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If, if you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 9, besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but the Father, God the Father, disciplines us for our good. And here it is. Why does God discipline us? So that, verse 10, we may share His holiness. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Notice the peaceful fruit of righteousness of those who've been trained by it. And so here's the conclusion to discipline and suffering and sorrows. Verse 12 and 13, Therefore, the, writer of he the preacher of Hebrews says, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees that want to collapse, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame, hurt limbs, may be put, not be put out of joint, but rather healed. If you're like me, when you hear the preacher of Hebrews say disciplined, you might only think of that as a father disciplining his son because of sin. The kid did something wrong, and so hardships coming into his life. That is a far too narrow dis definition of what discipline is. Uh, it's common to speak of both formative and corrective discipline. Formative discipline, think of like a coach who makes the athlete do what they don't want to do so they can accomplish what they want to accomplish. It's the proactive decisions of deliberately making um, uh, uh, self-control, as it were, in our life to be disciplined. And there also is... Uh, corrective discipline, where there is sin and folly and error, and God uses others to speak into our lives so that we can put off the sin and put on Christ. But listen to what he's doing. God brings discipline. He brings hardship. The Bible's honest. It does not, it's painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's discipline trains us, like an athlete, like a father. So God, a proof of God's love, and this seems the exact opposite of how we would intuit this. What do I mean? When life is hard, you think God doesn't like you. When life is hard, you might even think God is not there. When you think life is hard, you think God is against you. And this is the exact opposite. This is saying that when life is hard, God is there. When life is hard, God loves you. And when life is hard, God loves you to change you into the image of Christ. I.e., he's pruning you. Our training in Christ-likeness is both glacial across our lifetime. It's the difficult marriage. It's the difficult parenting of adult children. 
and grandparenting of wayward little children. It's the work, it's the relationships, it's the education, it's anything and everything. Those hardships that exist in this fallen world. So often, we don't even notice, but God is always using that glacial pace to uh, shape and form the canyons and more in our lives. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Peter is talking about, in verse 6, the great gospel salvation we have in Jesus, the forever rescue of our sins being washed away by his blood and be accepted by the Father. And then 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 9, listen to this. Peter is extolling the glories of the gospel and all that we have eternally in Jesus. And then he says, In this you rejoice, the gospel, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And notice the grieving of various trials. Did you hear what came before it? If necessary. Somebody deemed it necessary that you be grieved by various trials, that somebody is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God himself. In this you rejoice, glories of the gospel, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Why? Why are we have these trials, Lord? They're so hard, it's painful and grieving. Why these trials? Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, meaning purification testing, not whether you get a C minus or a B plus, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, those tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter says, to summarize, God deems it necessary to grieve us with trials. And those trials have an effect. The effect is to purify the genuineness of our faith and to um, increase praise, glory, and honor that will be given to Jesus when he returns, suffering makes you a better worshiper. That's Peter's logic. Why is your life hard? It's because God loves you. And that's counterintuitive. But we believe it because the Bible says it. That's why life is hard. God wastes nothing. Your prolonged sickness, your relational difficulties, life not going the way that you prayed or asked, the loss of your job, your unfulfilled dreams, persecution for following Jesus, pain, God uses it all to prune us, to make us more fruitful for Jesus so that we get better at worshiping Jesus at his return and loving each other. And our love for each other, John 15, shows our unbelieving friends and family that the gospel is sturdy and true. Jesus is real and not a fairy tale. And that only the gospel 
the gospel alone of Christ and the power of God to bring beauty out of ashes shows that we ought to believe. So the point of all pruning is not primarily, why is this happening, O Lord? It is, what are you producing, O Father? And these last two points are very quick, actually. So then what are the results of pruning? Well, we, we've seen some, I've said some, but there's actually a handful, there's a number, at least seven in John 15, that he gives of what are the results of the Father's pruning for fruitfulness. Look again at verse 8. See if you can hear them. Hear the results of what happens. Okay, verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Down in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask in my name, the Father, he will give it to you. And verse 17, these things I command you so that you love one another. Nestled in those verses, God uses pruning. He uses, again, the sin, sorrows, and sufferings. Verse 8 tells us that the fruit we produce in verse 8 glorifies the Father. Your moving through the valley of the shadow of death glorifies the Father. Makes His name famous as He carries you through it. Verse 8 tells us that your fruitfulness and suffering proves you're a disciple. We talked about this last time in the parable of the soils. So many of us struggle with assurance of salvation. And when you move through the Father's pruning and you come out the other side still loving Jesus, you're battered and bruised, but you're trusting the Father, His discipline in your life. When you move through suffering and you still claim Jesus as Lord, it proves you're a disciple of Jesus. So right now, if you're sitting here struggling with assurance of salvation, survey your life. Look at the hardships that you came through. Maybe you had to be dragged through them. Maybe it brought you to the very limit, but you still were held by Jesus. It should give you confidence that you love Jesus. Verse 11, Jesus says, I'm telling you this so that my joy would be in you. The truth of the Father's pruning is meant to cause joy to sprout in your heart because you trust him. Verse 16 tells us that our fruit abiding means that your love for others will actually have lasting effects in the lives of other people. Could you imagine what it'll be like on that day when you enter into glory and there's a host of faces that you recognize and they walk up to you and they tell you how this thing that you weren't even thinking about or you didn't, this conversation that we had, this, this, that, and the other, when you did these things for me, you helped me follow and know Jesus all the more. That's going to happen to you. How glorious is that going to be to know that you helped others know and follow Jesus? Your fruit will have lasting effect on others' lives. It's, the fruit will give us effective prayers. And verse 17 ends, these things I command you so that you will love one another.
your suffering is about the Father, but your suffering is ultimately not about you. Do you see the logic of the text? Suffering and pruning produces fruitfulness. Fruitfulness is for others. Your suffering is for the blessing and benefit of others. None of your sorrows are, are wasted. And those sorrows that you've gone through, you can walk alongside others to help them know how the gospel of Jesus Christ carried you through those troubles and you came out loving him more. All that and more are the better fruit the Father produces when we persevere through suffering and trouble and actively seek to do good for your church. But lastly and briefly, Christ. You could hear this, and when you go through pain and problems, you feel very, very alone. You feel very, very misunderstood and unknown. And in all of our sufferings and sorrows, when you feel and believe those things, you retreat from the fellowship of the saints. But there is somebody who does know. Can you guess what his name is? His name is Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Christ, the suffering servant, our hope and hero in suffering. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins, to atone and remove our sins of the people. For because Jesus himself has suffered, when tempted, Jesus is able to help those who are being tempted. God, in Christ, does not look down upon you in your suffering with a dispassionate eye like a doctor with a bad bedside manner. No, God the Son entered into this fallen world, entered into our suffering. He lived in the effects of the fall. Jesus faced temptation to sin as we do. Jesus' life was a life of suffering in all capacities as the suffering servant. And because Jesus suffered with us and for us, he is able to help you in all of your sufferings. Jesus, because he suffered through resisting temptation, is able to help you when you are tempted to have those limbs out of joint and weak knees that Hebrews told us about. One of Jesus' chief descriptions in the Old Testament was suffering servant, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You're not alone. Jesus is with you. The beauty of God's plan of pruning is that it's a definition and demonstration of his love, and Jesus is with you in it. You are not alone, and Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. 
He will not take his spirit from you, and the Father will never stop loving you. He loves you. The gospel was the Father's idea, and so he sent the Son. You are not alone, and neither are you alone with your fellow saints who are also with Christ. Who are also facing the Father's good pruning. Christ himself entered in our suffering with you and for you. That's why he, Jesus, is your hope. And he, Jesus, is your hero and champion, captain and king. So no, he doesn't have a bedside manner. No, he doesn't have a dispassionate eye. His cosmic, eternal gospel plan means that all of those hardships, all of those ashes, the wake of destruction that you have created behind you, God is able to bring beauty out of those ashes. Dear friends, understand this. If you are not a believer, know that you can be made right with the Father, not because of anything that you do, but everything that Jesus did, dying on the cross for you. Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, be saved, and know that this truth today is yours in Christ. And dear Christian, you be assured don't suffer in silence and know that the Father is absolutely, unshakably for you in all of the perplexities and problems that you face in this life. He has an eternal plan that has many twists and turns, steps forward that lead to a three-foot slide backwards, and yet he is working meticulously in every detail to bring about his gospel plan so you can sleep tonight. And trust in him, because Christ is with you and will not forsake you. Amen? Amen. Oh, Lord, we love you. Oh, Lord, we trust you. Oh, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Father, have your way with us and glorify yourself, we pray in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen.